You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Welcome to GCC. My name is Brad. If I don't know you, I'd love to meet you after service. I'm on staff here. Uh, We are in week two of our new series called Live on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' longest recorded teaching that we have, and it's all about uh, what it looks like for us to live as members of his kingdom. And oftentimes what Jesus uh, uh, says about what it looks like to live is controversial or upside down based on what the culture around us would tell us uh, uh, how to live. And so uh, today we're just going to look at one verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, the second of these Beatitudes these statements of blessing that Jesus makes. I'm just going to read the verse. Mark read it earlier. Then I'll open this up in a word of prayer. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for your grace. Uh, thank you that we uh, have a, a righteous standing before you because of, of your love for us and not because of anything that we have done. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for the people who are here in this room. Um, God, no one is here by accident. Uh, We believe that you've brought each of us here this morning for a purpose, for a reason. And so we trust and submit to to your will. We know that it is good. God, we ask that you would help us all this morning. God, help me to uh, teach clearly, um, to explain and, and proclaim the gospel boldly. God, I pray that you would help each of our hearts to receive what you have for us, that you've You'd give us eyes to see you more clearly, uh, hearts that fall more in love with you. Um, God, if there's anyone here who does not yet know you, who's exploring Christianity, God, we are so glad they are here for that you'd be speaking to their hearts this morning as well. Um, God, thank you for your word and that uh, in it we have truth and access to you. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've, we've read this verse a couple times now, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And so today we're going to talk about sadness, uh, which is not necessarily a happy topic. Um, ironic. Uh, yeah, uh, we're going to talk about sadness. And so we have, a lot of, of us probably have different relationships to sadness. Uh, there's kind of a spectrum of how we relate to sadness. I personally uh, choose to avoid sadness. I don't like feeling sad. Uh, I don't like being uh, emotionally like unwell, and so I do whatever I can to avoid sadness. And so if Jenna and I are watching a show or a movie, and it starts to like tug on those heartstrings, and I can feel, feel the tears welling up, all of a sudden I'm thirsty, or I have to go to the bathroom. And I leave the room, I get out of there, and I, I remove myself from the environment that is causing sadness or any kind of emotional discomfort. Um, a, more, a more extreme uh, or, or serious example is a few years ago, Jen and I had a dog named Roman. And uh, Roman was a Rottweiler. We got him as a puppy, and we loved this dog. He was awesome. Uh, he got really big, uh, which was, uh, is normal, obviously, for Rottweilers. And he was a ton of fun. But when he turned about a year old, a little bit beyond that, uh, his demeanor changed, and he started getting really unpredictable and unsafe. Uh, and really dangerous. And so uh, he would snap at Jenna and me and anyone who got near him. And so we, we looked for all different kinds of options of what we could do. Uh, we were, had been going to a trainer that specialized in more aggressive breeds of dogs, um, and he didn't have any answers for us. We looked around to different refuges and rescues that would take Rottweiler specifically, but 
uh, it's hard to find a home for a dog that shows those kinds of patterns. And so after a lot of uh, prayer, a lot of talking to friends, a lot of trying to figure out what to do, we came to the difficult decision that we had to put Roman down. Uh, and this was super sad when I think about the uh, like mo there's moments in my life that stand out as uh, especially noteworthy because of the amount of tears I shed. <laughs> and this is one of those moments uh, where the week uh, leading up to that, that appointment and then even that day uh, were super difficult and very sad. And uh, I don't want to feel that way ever again. Uh, and so I do whatever I can to avoid thinking about Roman. And so I've got a bunch of pictures on my phone uh, that are super fun, great memories, but I, I don't look at them. I can't bring myself to look at those and feel, feel that way again. And so th this is my response to sadness is avoidance. Um, I, I, I try to remove myself from it because I don't like feeling in that way. Maybe you have a similar response to sadness. Maybe you try to avoid it. On the other end of the spectrum, there might be some of us in here uh, who rather than avoiding sadness, we almost like wallow in it or relish it. We, we sit in a, a state of sadness for longer than necessary, and, and we, we kind of become engulfed in a, a feeling of sadness, and we don't do anything or want to even get out of that season of sadness. And so there, there's kind of two ends of the spectrum when it comes to sadness. We either avoid it or we relish in it. We wallow in it. And I think that not, I don't think either of these are a super healthy relationship to sadness. And I think this morning that through this through this beatitude, we will hopefully find a healthy middle ground as how we as Christians should relate to sadness, and specifically sadness over our sin. And so uh, last week, Rick kicked off the series, and he kicked off the first beatitude, which says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he talked about that word blessed, how we could, we could translate that or read that as happy and explain how, uh, how that works. And that, that's a good translation of this word blessed. But then when we get to this verse, we have a little bit of of a contradiction because it says happy are those who mourn, or we could say happy are those who are unhappy. And so what, what is Jesus saying here when he's saying blessed or happy are those who are unhappy, happy are those who, who mourn. And so to, to address this contradiction, to, to get to the bottom of this, we're going to kind of pick this verse apart almost word by word and, and ho hopefully help bring some clarity to what Jesus means. And so first, this word blessed, like I said, I think it's a good translation to say happy, like Rick, Rick said last week. And so let's unpack that a little bit more. And I think it's helpful to first address what blessed maybe doesn't mean. Uh, blessed is a word that gets thrown out in our culture a lot, and especially even in the Christian world, uh, with not a lot of biblical background to what, why we say it or what, what we're saying when we, when we say blessed. So here's a few things that blessed does not mean. Blessed does not mean financial prosperity. It can be really common to assume that if you, have, if you acquire financial wealth or prosperity, then that means God is somehow blessing you. God's favor is on you. But that's not, there's nothing in the Bible that would indicate financial prosperity as God's blessing. Uh, now, financial prosperity can be a gift from God, can be a good gift from God. But if God takes that gift away, it doesn't mean you're any less blessed than you were when you had financial prosperity. So blessed does not mean financial prosperity. Blessed doesn't, also doesn't mean the absence of suffering in life. I think oftentimes, I know I've done this, I will describe a, a season of life where there hasn't been any suffering, hasn't been any difficulties, hasn't been any pain, as God was really blessing me during that season. God, I, I, I would consider that a, a blessed time in my life. 
But as Christians, we know we can expect suffering. Christ suffered, and so we're going to suffer along with him. And so if we do go through suffering, that doesn't mean we're, again, any less blessed than we were when we didn't have suffering in our life. So blessed can't mean the absence of suffering. Another thing that blessed does not mean, and this is maybe a little less common, I've heard it in some circles, blessed does not necessarily equal religious freedom. Um, you might hear someone say, or maybe you've said uh, that, that God is removing his blessing from America as our religious freedoms are taken away or something like that because of the moral degradation of, of our, our culture. And so we're not blessed as a people or as a country. Nothing biblical about that. There's countries all around the world where Christians, it's illegal to follow Jesus. Churches are underground, and they're not any less blessed than we would be here in a country with more religious freedom. So blessed doesn't mean that. And then lastly, blessed does not mean happy. If what we, say when we, or what we mean when we say happy is a superficial, fleeting emotion that's based on circumstances. So, so when we say happy... We don't mean it as a a fleeting kind of surface level uh, cheerfulness or giddiness that can come and go based on circumstances in our life. What blessed does mean, what this kind of happy does mean, is a more steady uh, contentment, a a satisfied uh, uh, state of existence where, where where our soul is content. We're happy. Uh, things generally uh, as like a blanket in our life, we can say we're happy and good and content, not because of circumstances, not because of an emotion, not because of a feeling, but because of our standing before God. Now there's another line of thought woven into this word blessed that comes from the Old Testament and we see in the New Testament as well. And that has to do with God's favor. And so if you are blessed, if God is blessing you, you are in his favor. And so we, we kind of weave these two lines of thought together, and, and to be blessed is to be happy in God's favor. It, it's to be content and satisfied with life because you know where you stand before a holy God. To use more maybe secular terms, it's the ultimate good life. Uh, it's, it's, it's being safe and secure in God's favor that results in a constant state of happiness. And it's what everyone wants. It's what we desire and long for as humans. We were all created with a longing for the presence of God, a longing for a relationship with God, and then we attempt to satisfy this longing with a variety of other things. We pursue blessing when we pursue riches or relationships or pleasure or knowledge or enlightenment or whatever it might be that's going to make us say, I'm good, I'm satisfied, I'm content, I'm happy. We're all chasing blessing, we just might not use the word blessing to describe it. We're all striving for a state where we can say, I've finally arrived. The problem is, is we look for, those, we look for that, that arrival, that satisfaction in places that will never satisfy. God made us, and he made us to be ultimately satisfied in him. And so when we search for satisfaction in anything but him, we end up unsatisfied. And so we all want to be blessed. Every human wants to be blessed, happy in God's favor, even if we would call it something different. And so it's blessed are those who mourn. This blessing, this happy in God's favor is for people who mourn, who are unhappy. So what do we mean by mourn? Uh, Mourn what specifically? There's actually a handful of words in the Greek language that could be translated mourn. uh, And they all have a varying degree of intensity and severity and different nuances and stuff. And the word used here that Jesus uses is the most intense word for mourn. 
And so it, it's, it's, it brings up the, the most emotion, uh, the most intensity. One commentator defines it like this. It is defined as the kind of grief which takes such a hold that it cannot be hidden. It is not only the sorrow which brings an ache to the heart, it is the sorrow which brings the unrestrainable tears to the eyes. So we have an intense kind of mourning, a really deep-seated mourning that is as physical as it is emotional. That's the kind of sadness Jesus is talking about here. And so what do Christians, what do followers of Jesus mourn in this way? Sin. We mourn sin. Our own sin, our own brokenness, the sin of others, the sin in the world. But when we look at our life and we will look out in the world and we see brokenness and evil and wickedness and hurt and pain, we attribute that to sin, rebellion against God. And our hearts break because of it. And so you might be here this morning uh, in a, a state of mourning because of sin, either because of your own and the damage that it has caused in your life and in the lives of those you love. Uh, maybe you are mourning the sin of someone in your life who has hurt or affected you. Or maybe you just look out into the world and you look at the brokenness and you look at everything that is going on. You look at evil and destruction and pain and you're sad. Your heart is breaking. It's good. It's okay. And there's hope for those of us who mourn. Now, Remember, we, we, we're reading one verse here. We need to take this verse in context. And last week, Rick talked about the first beatitude, which says, blessed are the poor in spirit. How we are spiritually bankrupt and we have nothing to bring God. And so this, is, this morning is the companion to our spiritual bank, bankruptcy. It's not simply that we don't have anything to bring God. It's that we don't have anything and our hearts are grieved because of it. Uh, my wife and I have some very generous family members who are really good gift givers. And every Christmas, basically every Christmas uh, since we've been married, at some point when we're exchanging gifts, Jenna and I will open a gift from someone and then like immediately our hearts will sink. And not because the gift sucks. <laughs> it's because what we got that person compared to what they got us sucks. And, um, and this like happens regularly because my, our families are just really good gift givers. And so we like open it. It's like, wow, this is really valuable. Hope you like your gift card, you know? Um, and so, and like our heart sinks. This is kind of like the exchange, uh, we have with God. Um, we bring nothing to the, if there is a gift exchange at Christmas with God, what we would bring is of no value. In fact, it's of negative value. It's costly. Like what we have, our sin, it, it, it requires a price. It's a burden to bear. And that's all we have to give. And what God brings us is his glorious, magnificent, eternal life, forgiveness, redemption, majestic. There's so much splendor. And when we look at the gift that we are receiving from God, and then what we have to give, our sin, our heart sinks. We're grieved because of the, the unfairness the lack of fairness in this exchange. Jesus gets our sin, something he certainly doesn't deserve, and we get his righteousness. But blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn because it is mourning that drives us to the foot of the cross. When we look out at the world, when we look at our own lives and we see sin and our hearts break because of it, where else can we go but to the foot of the cross? And it's at the foot of the cross where we find comfort. The promise in this verse, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. The promise is comfort. 
Uh, comfort is a major theme uh, as the Old Testament predicts the coming of Jesus. As the Old Testament predicts the coming of the Messiah, it talks about the Messiah bringing comfort to mourning people. Here's a passage from the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 61, the first few verses say this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. In the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus begins his ministry, he goes to a synagogue and he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he reads this. And then he closes it and he looks at the crowd and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, the spirit of the Lord is on me. I'm the Messiah and I have come to provide all of these things for you. The arrival of Jesus means good news to the poor. It means healing for the brokenhearted. It means liberty for the captives. It means God's favor has arrived. It means comfort for those who mourn. Comfort is available in Jesus because Jesus became uncomfortable on the cross for us. And in place of our sin and mourning, we get clothed in royal righteousness. All of these terms here, the, the, the description of what Jesus comes to bring are all descriptions of royalty, a beautiful headdress, a crown, Instead of ashes, Mark talked about how it was an ancient practice to cover yourself in ashes when you were mourning and repenting. The oil of gladness, kings were anointed, a garment of praise, and ultimately were oaks of righteousness. This is the, the ultimate rags to riches story, where, where we are, are, are brought from our lowly, sinful, sad state and given royalty, clothed in righteousness and planted firmly as massive oaks that cannot be moved, cannot be shaken. The difference between this rags to riches story and most rags to riches story is that it's not us that shed our rags. It's not us that, that by our own power, our own good works, our own doing, provide ourselves or gain the riches for ourselves. They're given as a free gift of God's grace. In fact, all we have to contribute, I mean, look at the state that we are in. We're poor, we're brokenhearted, captive, bound, mourning covered in ashes, faint of spirit. That's what we got. That's who we are. And then the, the Messiah, Jesus comes and says, no, no, raises us up, clothes us with royal righteousness, and then plants us firmly in his favor. That's comfort. As we mourn our sin, as we mourn the sin of the world, as we are saddened by the brokenness we experience and see, Jesus says we're blessed. Because ultimately God has brought us comfort in our mourning through Christ. In Christ, we are forgiven and free from condemnation. And so the sin that we see in our own life, we know ultimately will not have the last say. Jesus' death and resurrection has the last say. As we look to the sin in the world around us, our mourning can turn to gladness because we know Jesus is going to return and do something about it. There's hope in the gospel. So the benefit of mourning our sin is that it drives us back to the God of all comfort who provides us comfort in the gospel. Because we still experience sin. We're forgiven. There's no condemnation, but we still experience the presence of sin in our life. 
but we can be confident that ultimately our mourning will not have the last say. We have examples of this throughout scripture. And so I want to draw our attention to two, one from the Old Testament and one from the New, about how mourning leads to comfort. And mourning leads to celebration of what God has done. The first is in Psalm chapter 51. Uh, Psalm 51 is a prayer of confession from David. Uh, David uh, sleeps with another man's wife and then has her husband killed so that he can have her all to himself. And when he's confronted by a prophet because of his sin, David prays this prayer of confession in Psalm 51. I'm going to start in verse 3. It says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David's well acquainted with his sin and its effects. He's sinned against God, and God's judgment is right, and it's good. It's just. David acknowledges his sin. He's mourning it, but then look at verse 7. It drives him back to God. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David goes from acknowledging his sin, mourning it, recognizing God's good and right judgment that he deserves because of it, to then asking God, pleading with God to cleanse him, to forgive him, to make him new. It's David's sin against God that actually drives him to God because he knows that it's only from God that he can receive forgiveness and a clean heart. The New Testament example, Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is an awesome chapter that makes at least me feel a little bit better about myself because Paul is acknowledging this wrestle between sin and righteousness where he does what he doesn't want to do and he doesn't do what he does want to do. And he kind of, here's like a, a summary verse of kind of the back and forth that Paul does in chapter seven of Romans, verses 18 and 19. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do want is what I keep on doing. So Paul is mourning his sin. He's saying, saying, man, in my flesh, I want sin. And so even though my desire is to to obey God, I keep sinning. I keep doing this and and I can't do anything about it. Verse 24, he, he wraps things up and he says, wretched man that I am. That's Paul's conclusion. After wrestling this back and forth between his sin and his obedience and doing things well and not well, and this this state of the Christian life that we all experience, he says, wretched man that I am, he's mourning his sin. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Uh, He answers his question immediately after, verse 25. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's mourning in his sin leads to thankfulness for Jesus who has offered him forgiveness and redemption and comfort. Happy are the unhappy and blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. There's comfort available in the gospel. There's comfort available in Christ and in Christ alone. You can search a lot of places to find comfort from the mourning and sadness you experience because of sin and brokenness in your life and the world. But no comfort will compare to the comfort that comes from Christ. It might comfort for a while, 
but it's temporary and fleeting and ultimately will drive you back to despair. Part of the promise of this comfort in this verse is not just a present comfort, but a future comfort. It says, for they will be comforted. And so while we are forgiven and redeemed and don't experience uh, and, and will not be condemned for our sin, we still live in its presence. And so we still experience the effects of sin and brokenness in our life. But there's hope for a future, a better future. Revelation 21, the very common verse in talking about the new heavens and the new earth. It says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. One day, there will be no more mourning. There will be no more sin in your life or in the world around you for you to look at and be brokenhearted over. That is a sure and true future that is coming, that Jesus will bring, that he will provide, and so we can have hope in that day. And in the meantime, while we wait for that day to come, we mourn our sin, and that mourning drives us to the cross, our source of comfort. So I, I, I began with kind of the two sides of the spectrum, spectrum when it comes to sadness. We either avoid it or we wallow in it. We relish in it. And I'm going to come back to that now in relation to our mourning over sin. There's probably two camps, the risk of overgeneralization, two camps this morning in our relationship to sadness and sin. Some of us might not mourn our sin at all. Uh, our response to sin is that ours is not that bad, uh, that there's far worse in the world than what I have done. And so my sin, while small, insignif- is small and insignificant, and we don't feel a whole lot of ill towards it. It's more of a minor inconvenience than a death sentence. Now there's others who might only mourn and never make it to the comfort. Your sin is so overwhelming and crushing uh, that it's debilitating and you just, you just sit in it. And you don't believe the promise of the gospel that you've been forgiven. And so wherever you land, whether you don't mourn over your sin or you only mourn over your sin, the application is actually the same for both. You look to the cross. For the one who doesn't mourn their sin, look to the cross and see the price Jesus paid. It's easy to emotionally remove ourselves from the events of the cross because we are physically removed from it. But we have to keep in mind that my sin and your sin, our sin is what drove the nails into Jesus's hands and feet. Our sin is what put him on the cross. The most perfect, holy, beautiful life put on a sinner's cross because of our sin. That, that's that's the, the nastiness, the ugliness, the badness of sin. And it's yours included. And so look to the cross. If you struggle to mourn your sin, if you don't think it's that bad, look to the cross, see the price Jesus paid, and then pray and ask God to give you eyes to see yourself rightly. For those who only mourn and never make it to the comfort part of this promise, look to the cross and see that the work is done. It's completed. 
When, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the last thing he said was, it is finished, meaning the work is done. There's no like continual penance that you have to pay to, to keep yourself in God's good graces. That you don't have to continually just beating yourself and being so frustrated and sad and, and angry and mourning over your sin because the work is done. Jesus paid it all. It's over. It's done. You are completely 100% truly and totally forgiven, redeemed, righteous in Christ. And so if you can't stop mourning your sin and make it to the comfort that's provided in the gospel, look to the cross, see that the work is done, and then pray and ask God to give you eyes to see Christ and all that he has done rightly. Uh, to conclude, I want to read a quote. Um, it comes from Paul David Tripp uh, in a devotional that he wrote on Lent. So it's a 40-day devotional for Lent. Uh, and this is in the introduction of this devotional. He says this, Mourning means you recognize the most important reality in the human existence, sin. Mourning means you have been hit by the weight of what, has done to, what it has done to you and to everyone you know. Mourning says you have considered the devastating fact that life right here, right now, is one big spiritual war. Mourning means that you have come to realize as you get up in the morning that once again, you will be greeted with a catalog of temptations. Mourning means that you know that there are real spiritual enemies out there meaning to do you harm. Mourning results when you confess that there are places where your heart still wanders. But mourning does something wonderful to you. The sad realities that cause you to mourn also cause you to cry out for the help, rescue, forgiveness, and deliverance of a Redeemer. Jesus said that if you mourn, you will be comforted. He's not talking about the comfort of elevated feelings. He's talking about the comfort of the presence and grace of a Redeemer who meets you in your mourning, hears your cries for help, comes to you in saving mercy, and wraps arms of eternal love around you. It's the comfort of knowing that you're forgiven, being restored, now living in a reconciled relationship with the one who made you, and now living with your destiny secure. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you've done something about sin. The, the, the brokenness that we experience in just personal and painful ways in our life and the world around us should cause us to mourn and grieve that we are contributors to uh, yeah, just the mess that the, the world is in. Help us to see that rightly. Help us to not think that we are somehow better or not as bad as the Bible says we are. But God, help us not to dwell there and live in that state, but to move quickly to the comfort that you provide in the cross. God, I pray that we all would leave here not mourning, but rejoicing. Because the price has been paid, we no longer have a debt, we are forgiven, redeemed, reconciled to you. And that doesn't change if we leave here and, and sin today, it doesn't change uh, no matter what we do or don't do. It is safe and secure because Jesus, you paid the price, you've done it all. God, help us to worship you now in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.